0: Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com. And please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions. And it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change we are back this time for a second part of my conversation with soldier turned anti poaching activist damian mander last week damian told us about his childhood where he was bullied and beaten up every day, and how that informed his time as a sniper in the Australian military, and then as a private security contractor in Iraq. He had an appetite for danger and aggression, and even a tattoo on his chest that said, seek and destroy. The conversation got intensely personal for me since Iraq is my home country. That episode is really about the relationship between healing and difficult truths. These are not recent events, and yet for Damien and I, they still leave us raw and with work to do around the issue of forgiveness, forgiving others, and forgiving oneself. Today, we discuss how Damien transformed his life from one of war to one of protection and progress protecting endangered animals, and empowering the most marginalized women in Africa in the process. But before we fully explore Damien's transformation and his vision for conservation, let's go back to where we left him last week with a gun to his head in war-torn Iraq.
1: We went through a checkpoint and like our convoy was was blown up going through the checkpoint. It killed a couple of uh, uh, Iraqi security guards uh, or uh, police officers that were at the checkpoint as we're going through. And as we pushed through, we, we were surrounded uh, quite quickly by um, uh, like a local Maori army militia, uh, you know, mixture of militia and, and you know, um, you know, road police and military officers. And it's like, you know, like, yeah, this is... You know, I had a Dushka anti-aircraft gun, like, held to my head. And it's just like, okay, this is it. And I was like, shit, now this is it. Okay, this is how it ends. You know, they're trying to pull guys out of the, uh, the turrets of the other vehicles. And it's like, okay. And then uh, the US Army Rangers came in and, and got us out of there and got us back to a, a base. Yeah, so I went and took leave. And, you know, like leave for me, you know, so I was single for most of the time. And so leave for me is you know every time like it's just you go wild when you get out and you go wild when you're about to go back in because this 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 is either it you've just made it or like shit you know I don't know if I'm gonna make it and um, so I remember going out after that leave and just yeah really like and, like like the, the wheels were starting to come off and I was becoming complacent on my missions and operations and stuff and then going back in I remember my last rotation and uh I came out just before the end of 2017. I remember having to do, we had a bunch of missions to do on Christmas Day. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, business as usual in Iraq and having to do missions on Christmas Day. I thought, fuck, if I get killed on Christmas Day, it's going to spoil Christmas for my mum for the rest of her life. But I got out of there a few days later and that was it. Yeah, it was just, um, you yeah. know, financially, I didn't need to be there. Mentally, I wasn't there. Emotionally, I was done. Uh, it was time. It was time to to turn the page
0: so as i understand it that you left and and then that led you to a trip as i understand it you took a year off and traveled the world and tell me what happened in that year what what were you what were you looking for what were you trying to accomplish what were you what did you do in that year
1: um so I I i was quite well off financially at this stage um you know, I wasn't even thirty at, at the time, and I had a I had uh, two apartments in Dubai, and I had five houses in Australia. You know, I didn't own them all outright, but I had you know paid a lot of most of them, so I was in a, in a pretty good position. And uh, so I was, you know, I've done well. I've served in some of the most elite military units. I've survived uh, three years in Iraq. You know, so it's okay. I'm I'm gonna take okay, I'm g- gonna give myself a reward. And that was a holiday that started in South America, in Buenos Aires, uh, and finished 11 months later in Panama. And uh, it just became huge, like it started off awesome and just partying and, uh, and drugs and alcohol, but you keep that up. Uh, you go from doing, You go from being always on in these units and being trained and then they going out and you know for whatever reason you had mission and purpose and and the unit around you and then all of a sudden it's not there you go from being always on to completely off not only off but out of it you know so i, I, I just you know it was a rapid downward spiral for me and uh you know the, the deeper and faster you go the, the 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 more acceleration it gains in terms of its momentum where you're going and just, you know, cocaine and, and all-night drinking, binges. You know, they go for three days, not all night. All night, that's that's a, that's a Monday. Uh, you know, just crazy, wild shit. And, uh, and not, not using your brain. You've got nothing to think about other than, you know, where's your next score coming from and, and who you're going out to drink with uh, for the next couple of days.
0: So what was it that led you to stop after this one year of... Of partying, or numbing your, your, numbing yourself, or decomposing, or releasing—was it falling in love? Was it trying to see what I'm gonna do now for a living? What was it? You know, what was the question that says, "Okay, um, it's time to stop."
1: I mean, yeah, like I, I didn't need to, didn't necessarily need to work, so I had this. And I had a layer of financial security there to go and explore. And, and I, deep down, I sort of always understood or knew that I would find where I'm supposed to be in travel in the world. Uh, nothing against home. It just, I always knew my, my place wasn't at home. Not to be running away from anything. It was just, you know, home for, 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 for me is just seems secure. And I think that's the thing I'm most afraid of is being secure and in. in, in comfort you know i wanted to be challenged and i wanted to have adventure and i would say uh there was a you know, up until up until the early years of of my conservation career I, I would have considered myself selfish self-centered uh i joined the military for adventure i went to iraq to make money and when i came to africa i was looking for a fight not a course it was it was adventure um there was nothing There was nothing really noble or good intentioned about my arrival in in Africa. It was a six month journey. Yeah, I mean, after you've done the shit that I'd done at that stage, being in our version of the SEALs, being as a special ops sniper, being in Iraq, being in South America, partying it it up, there's very little you can sort of do to, to impress people and uh i'd heard about anti-poaching years before and some some barroom chat and it sounded like a cool adventure so yeah and that had sort of sat at the back of my mind for a while And i think it was south america that brought that that option to the surface maybe as as uh, you know the next adventure or maybe as a, an opening door maybe it's just a, as a way to get an excuse to get out of south america where i'd already hit rock bottom and um arrived in africa and just started you know working my way around seeing different operations different national parks what was going on speaking to rangers and it's okay and I, offering my services and getting closed doors everywhere and uh and looking back now you know and i get an email a day in some sometimes you know some sometimes from people who are just like i was that want to come over with their own sniper rifles and automatic weapons and go and hunt poachers and, and I, you know i can I can speak to the person I used to be in that that circumstance because I know I remember what it was like the look in the people's eyes when you come over saying, Yeah, I'm, I'm here, I've got all this experience. And here you've got someone who's spent two or three decades building a career in conservation and good relationships with local communities. And then you've got some some hothead kid that wants to come in and go out and hunt poachers and it's just for all the wrong reasons. I mean, that was it was all part of, of really steering me onto into the right direction. You need to be shut down. You need to be told no. You need to be, I think, forced into a corner where you have to figure things out for yourself. I'd say my early, early you know, the first year in Africa definitely, well, it, it shaped me from being over here into an adventure to actually wanting to do something long-lasting. And then, and then the subsequent years after that uh, shaped me from thinking what I thought was right into... What I now know is right. I come from a military background, and when I first came over here, conservation was becoming increasingly militarized. And of course, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So you find you you find you you fall into cadence with that side of of conservation, which was this militarized type of conservation against local communities that, of course, live on the boundaries of the areas you're trying to protect. Uh, you've got elephants and rhinos being hunted towards extinction from these. Uh, you know, small armed to militia type units that are crossing international borders to come in and, and hunt these animals for the value of their tusk and their horn. You know, I mean, a, a rhino horn is selling for thirty five thousand US dollars a pound, a rhino can easily have twenty or thirty pounds uh, on its snout. So you've you've got something that should be locked up in a safe, running around a, 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 an area the size of a small country, uh, and being hunted by these 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 groups. And so, yeah, there, there was a place for me at the time, but I just didn't realise. How um, how what I thought my place was would evolve over time to to where we are now.
0: How did it happen?
1: Yeah, it took us seven years actually to figure out what we do as an organisation. So over those those initial months, like I mean, it took me six months to find a start, like a, a, an organisation that would accept me and say, okay, yeah, you can come out and do some work with these rangers. And so I started working with the rangers and living with them and patrolling with them and. There's a a group of guys out here in the middle of nowhere that had hardly any resources. Uh, They were motivated. They just lacked basic training. Uh, They lacked basic resources. And most of all, they lacked any form of attention uh, or acknowledgement for what they're doing. And and I I just come from working within a $600 billion a year annual defense budget in Iraq. Uh, We had anything we wanted at any time of the day, uh, uh any piece of equipment. We had drones trying to bring us home safely at night. We push a button. We've got military units coming to pull us out of the shit when shit goes down. And then you come over here and you and you know we we're looking after oil in the ground. And then you come over here and you see these 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 guys looking after the the heart and lungs of the planet and they've got they got nothing. And you're like, okay, all right, there's something here. And alongside what was happening with that it was happening at the same time. Now I I I was never allowed to touch guns growing up. Uh, And so, of course, the day I turn 18, I go and get my gun license and buy a rifle and I start hunting. And um, I never hunted again after Iraq because I knew what it was like to be hunted uh, and to hunt something that we should back. And um, uh, so I had this, in a a way, I was sort of trying to, you know, as 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 a teenager in early 20s, trying to fulfill some form of male primal respect uh I'll, I'll get that from my peers you know it's just bullshit it's like the the, the most blatant form of insecurity uh and and to fill that insecurity you take it out on the most vulnerable you know so I, iraq had given me this you know a different lens through which to see the world and um you know i never viewed animals the way that i viewed them when i arrived in africa i, I mean we grew up with dog uh, a german shepherd growing up and you know, that was like the closest I ever come to an animal or having compassion for animals. And so they are seeing all, all the work that these rangers are doing, leaving, leaving their families behind for up to 11 months of the year out there, working for a couple of hundred bucks a month. I'm getting paid a quarter million dollars a year. Uh, and I was like, okay, you know, these guys are, are committed. And, and seeing what was happening to the animals that, that they were trying to protect, it, it did, it, it affected me. And then there was two particular incidents. One was seeing a buffalo of uh, a female cape buffalo, uh, like one of the most powerful and dangerous animals. Like the, the buffalo in, in Africa on foot is a buffalo. And, uh, seeing one of these animals, she had a back leg caught in a wire snare. And the rangers, when we arrived there, the rangers read the ground like you or me understand the front page of the newspaper it's a language and they can tell how long uh, that animal has been there and what's been going on They're like yeah okay she's been here for three days uh and you could hear the bones crunching under her skin where she'd ripped her pelvis apart trying to escape from this wire snare that was wrapped around her back leg that the poachers put across these paths to try and catch animals uh, and they wait till they're in this type of state to come in and then, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, uh, smash their spine with an ax and then they'll cut their throat and then take all the meat or whatever it may be. And, um, and this animal, this Buffalo had to be euthanized. And, uh, when she was euthanized, like this, this fluid started coming out and she started, had started to give birth to a stillborn calf. And, um, yeah, that was that was a very distinctive moment in my life. Um, and watching the rangers sit there and do an autopsy and, and cut the rest of the calf out, and just it's like this animal that just has been trying to fight for freedom for so hard, so long, like willing to rip your own pelvis apart uh, in that desperation and fear and lack of understanding of what was happening to you at the time. Um, yeah, it was a pretty, I'd say, probably one of the most profound things that that i'd experienced up until that point in my life and then uh and then uh seeing an elephant with its face cut off you know, something the size of a truck killed for something you can hold with in one hand uh which happens um times a year across africa uh so yeah that, that all that combined uh this is just this is all this stuff's just going into the blender of my emotions and thought process and purpose and what am I doing and where am I going and what's going at the time I had forms involved to go and study at, at, uh, Silwood catering college. I wanted to be a chef down in Cape town. And, uh, I was like, no, it's like, this is the one thing in life. I can't turn my back on. Uh, like, this is it. And I, I literally contacted my mom. Uh, she had, she had a power of attorney over on my property. Um, because if I got killed in Iraq, so she she was able to start selling off uh, houses, and you know I set up the IAPF uh, in October, two thousand and nine. We started off as a service provider, like giving training and resources to other units. Okay. Yeah, and then and uh, we we, just we
0: other other we who's we you know you and who we, else
1: we IAPF, well we started off yeah. just me, uh, and you know eventually put a small board together in Zimbabwe, uh, then we set up a board in Australia uh, as an organization there. My best mate, uh, the guy that was in the car with me came and joined me for for a number of years as we scaled up. And, you know, we started, you know, when I left Australia, um, I I came back from South America to Australia. When I left Australia to come to Africa, I I had a one-way ticket and carry-on luggage. I did not even have a check-in bag. 12 years later, uh, we, we have a portfolio of over seven million acres, uh, 270 staff that'll double in the, next, in the next 12 to 18 months, and you're know, running one of the, you know protection uh, with one of the most innovative models for conservation and law enforcement mm-hmm. that I think exists.
0: Well, let's talk about that because that's how we then end up meeting and me listening to your presentation about your organization. Now, tell me because you said you mentioned earlier in the interview a few things, that you have become vegan and that you have become a feminist. So tell me the story of why did you become vegan and why did you become a feminist?
1: So we we were walking around uh, protecting one group of animals all day long, uh, having to carry carry arms to do that uh, safely. And coming home and killing another group of animals uh, because we like the taste of them. And to me, it just didn't make sense. Um, although it didn't make sense, um, I still suppressed uh, the truth and just kept pushing it down, pushing it down. I didn't want to acknowledge it. And uh, it's just like it was, I was being the master of bullshit, really, to be honest. Uh, and then I was asked to do um a TEDx talk at the Sydney Opera House I was given six months notice so it's going to be you know packed full Sydney Opera House uh to deliver a, a, a full-length TEDx talk there and I had six months to prepare and it was in the pre- preparation of that I was asked to talk about more work and anti-poaching and it was in the preparation of that that I went down the rabbit hole of of uh animal agriculture and what it's actually doing to the planet and uh as a concert i signed up for conservation because i love nature and i love animals also i so i kept saying i'm walking around the world talk, you know talking on stages telling people how they need to look after nature and look after animals and i'm going home and eating a steak eating a chicken eating a fish i was just like this i'm a hypocrite and the last thing i want to be in this world is a hypocrite so when i got up to do this talk uh on the stage uh, in front of in front of the opera house, and I spoke about speciesism, about the allocation of different values and rights that we give to different species based on what their meaning to us as individuals are. And for a lot of us, that just means you know, uh, how they taste. We can relate to cats and dogs because we have them as pets. Uh, we can re- relate to some animals because they're cute and cuddly. We can relate to elephants and rhinos because they're sexy and we like to visit them and take photos of them. And a lot of us can relate to pigs and cows and chickens and fish because we're conditioned to eat them. Uh, but the truth is that they each share the same, the exact same capacity to suffer. And the only difference in the capacity to suffer is the difference we allow ourselves to accept in our own mind and conscience and, and that the truth is accumulative. A and there was, I was exposed to enough truth over a long enough period to eventually acknowledge that I did not want to be the person that I was anymore. And, you know, I'd say that is something about me when I make a decision about something. Uh, that's it. And, um, yeah, so, so when the shutters come up, they never go down again.
0: How, I mean, was it just you deciding, I'm just going to tell the truth, I'm going to be in truth in myself, I'm not going to bullshit myself again? Or was it the help of a therapist, of a beloved, of, uh, of an animal? I mean, I'm just curious because sometimes we need help and sometimes yeah. we just have a moment of epiphany and we're like, uh, I'm not doing this anymore.
1: Uh, there was definitely mentors, uh, although it was a, a, a one-way relationship that was being created, uh, mentors or, or movies, documentaries that influenced me, uh, watching certain speeches and and one thing leads to another and you're just doing more and more. And, and half of it you're like, yeah, okay, I knew this, I knew this, I knew this, shit, I knew this. I knew this and I didn't acknowledge it. I knew this or I pushed it aside. I knew it, but I kept doing what I was doing because I liked the taste of something. And, uh, and um, yeah, I just didn't want to be a part of a system anymore that is responsible for the greatest destruction of nature on this planet and the cause of more death than anything else in history. Uh, and that is animal agriculture.
0: Now tell me about, you know, because that's what I love about your work. That makes... Your work made a huge difference in my ability and willing and desire and to like be in this healing conversation with you. You know, it, it wasn't mm. only the acknowledgement, which I appreciate, nor only the sharing of the story, which I really appreciate. But it also, frankly, was your work, which is... You Know not only in the anti poaching moments uh, units and 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 protecting animals and protecting lands and um from being pillaged and abuse, but you also but also there's a the fact that uh I'm gonna invest in women. Tell me the story of how did you come to that yeah. conclusion?
1: Yeah, so we um. We're taking on bigger and bigger projects as an organization, scaling went from being a service provider, uh, training rangers to then taking over security portfolios for multiple reserves, and then into some very hostile regions. Uh, Along the the biggest project we got uh, back in 2015 was along the border of Kruger National Park and Mozambique. Kruger's in South Africa and Mozambique just across the border there and Kruger's was at the time home to about a third of the the world's uh, remaining rhino population. And we went into Mozambique as the only organization separating a third of the world's rhino and most of the world's rhino poaching syndicates that were trying to target them. And we we, we came in very heavy-handed with this militarized ground offensive Uh, against the local population this is where the syndicates were operating out from and and that's that was our job Uh, and we had helicopters canine attack teams uh you know 165 personnel four different government departments working there intelligence networks and drones military grade hardware and and i remember in 2017 we'd helped drive a massive downturn in rhino poaching uh, rhino poachers coming through that area into Kruger National Park. A lot of them tried to go south and under the park and come through from the western side uh, via South Africa. Um, but we we played a significant role in driving a downturn in that section of the park uh, where most of the rhino were. Uh, we got a lot of kudos for it. We got a lot, of, a lot of recognition. And But I remember sitting there saying, this is not right what we're doing is not right. It's not the answer. It's not sustainable. And We were just having a war with the local population. And I remember reading the UN Population Division uh, projection. I said there's going to be 2 billion people in Africa by 2040. I remember thinking we are not going to win this uh, by having bigger fences and more guns. And uh, it, was, it was literally uh, a turning point for me. It's like, okay, this is great. It's working. It's stopping animals from being killed, but it's not the answer. Uh, and not having an answer is an answer. It 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 pushes you out to try and find something else. Uh, so I remember seeing. I started. I was doing a lot of research and, and sort of you know broadening my perspective. I think in in trying to understand different ways of having interaction with uh, communities. So I remember seeing um, seeing a lot of research linking you know, women's empowerment to be the single most um, greatest force for positive change in Africa. Uh, I mean, that for me was a foreign concept. I'd come from, from all male units and, and the ultimate boys club of special operations. And uh, So now I started to read about women's empowerment as, as this, this, it seemed like a silver bullet, like this amazing tool for development in Africa. I didn't know how that was going to overlay with the work that we were doing. I uh, so see a lot of community projects you know, where there's co- uh, cooperatives or collectives of, of women doing you know, certain projects in the communities or getting certain benefits. I didn't know how it would overlay with what we were doing, conservation, which is a, a male-dominated industry where women are outnumbered at a ratio of around 100 to 1 in, in frontline uh, field-based positions. And when women do get roles close to the front lines, they're usually stuck on a gate, stuck walking a fence or stuck at a checkpoint writing a desk so we're looking at other other organizations that had integrated women into frontline conservation roles and they were being portrayed as doing all the work but actually held back from from doing the roles that that the public thought they were doing and those roles were actually being fulfilled by men so the question to me was okay so what if women could do these roles what if they were given the opportunity to do that and into getting the experience that they would need to rise up into management and, and, and lead operations, uh, just as other industries had got more women into management, more, more women on the boards, more women into, into CEOs. Uh, that, that just wasn't happening in conservation. Uh, and it, look, if we were getting it right, the situation would have been so much better. Uh, in terms of us as an industry and, and where so many species are headed, racing towards extinction and so much land being lost so we, we you know, i said you know we want to try and start a, an all-female anti-poaching unit like an armed all-female anti-poaching unit and we tried in seven different areas well no it was six different areas it's so the seventh area where we actually got to start but seven different areas six of them said no we don't want to take the risk we don't want to have women doing this this is a this is the man's job uh, this patriarchal society. And and eventually the only reason we got to start is because we chose an area that had nothing left to lose. That already lost everything. It was a trophy hunting area. Uh, trophy hunting has, had died as an industry. There was no animals left to shoot. And we were able to do um, a short-term deal with the local chief and local government to come in and trial uh, selection for what would go on to become Akashiga, or the brave ones, as they call themselves uh an, an all female anti poaching unit uh that's become more than just an anti poaching unit it's become a model of conservation yeah so that that was the beginning of it uh back in august 2017 and as i say it took us nearly 7 years to figure out what we do as an organization and who we are
0: tell me what you learned about that i mean i remember some of the stories you shared you you were like um... The men show you were also training men. And this is my memory, uh, Damien, which is the men would come and late or not always on time. The women were showing up really on time. That you were choosing women who are marginalized, you know, who are divorcees or widows and, you know, had no choice. That the women were dealing with their identity and their uh with with the guns or with the weapons in a very different way than the men were dealing with it and they were dealing with the anti-poachers and uh, with the poachers in a different way and so tell me more about that what you know let's go there yeah so i
1: I remember we were working with an aussie um, documentary maker at the time and we were there like in the in the the creation stages of the program. And when we were speaking to the local communities and so that, I remember the local communities asking, okay, so who are you looking for? And me and him, we looked at each other and we're like, okay, well, you know, if this thing is going to go beyond a three-day selection, which is what, the the only window they were giving us was a three-day selection because they thought this would fail and we would revert back to employing men. So we thought, well, if this goes beyond three days, which we think it might, Uh, let's give an opportunity to those that need it the most. And that's where the criteria for uh, um, women that were survivors of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS orphans, single mothers and abandoned wives and sex workers, that was the criteria uh, for the initial candidates in a country that when I first arrived had the lowest life expectancy in the world for a woman. Uh, So it was less than four years of age. So, yeah. And then I remember 87 women coming down for uh, initial interviews, and uh, yeah, still to this day, it's probably the toughest two days of my life listening to those, those 87 stories. You now, where these women had come from, uh, how they'd even made it this far in life. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it sort of it made me, it made me, you know, I'd built at the time, you know, i built a career across three continents in training men for combat, frontline deployment, I'd never worked with women Uh, and I remember in our units in Australia, we had the University of Wollongong come to do a study on on our unit to try and measure what it would take to integrate women into the ranks. We remember having like a locker room vote of like, no, we'd rather make our entry standards harder physically than allow women to work alongside us and that was just purely ego and insecurity. So I remember listening to those 87 stories and saying, okay. I remember like feeling a lot of resentment saying, okay, I haven't been a part of anything that's happened directly to these women individually, but I've been a part of uh, sustaining a culture that, oppressed, that had oppressed women just like this. And um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was quite a, you know, I still say to this day, and I've, I've very much become the student and remain the student in so much of where the program has gone and what it's, what it's taught me. But uh, yeah, those, we started off from those 87, I think we chose 37 to start selection. And from those 37, we chose 16. Those, those women were as tough as anything I've seen. And they, they made me realize the distance that you can place between suffering and breaking is what defines the spirit or the character of an individual. And that is what we need in a ranger. We need spirit and character. And these women had that in, in spades. We can train the rest, uh, as long as you've got spirit and character. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very early in the selection process when me and the other instructors looked at each other and we we're like, okay, okay this, is, this is real. Uh, we have to get these women ready for what they're going to face out there. They were going out into an area that had lost 8,000 elephants in the 16 years prior to us arriving.
0: Mm. And what do they teach you?
1: Uh, so, the fir- I mean, the, 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 the three things that make this program work that make it smoke to where it is today, scalable uh, in such a, a, a growing land portfolio. Uh, the first thing is we haven't seen any any corruption with the women. Uh, and Zimbabwe currently ranks, I think, 160 out of 180 countries on the Global Corruption Index. So if you can go to Zimbabwe and remove corruption from the equation of what you're doing, you're already halfway home to achieving whatever it is you're trying to do. So historically, with with men, we would employ men from hundreds of kilometers away. And bring them in, uh, and we did that uh, to avoid collusion with the communities they may have grown up with. So they were working in an area, protecting that area, and they would go home on their leave, and they wouldn't would we'd try and minimise interaction with the local community because we knew it would lead to corruption and either give out information on where elephants or rhinos were going to be or where they're going to be patrolling, and people will exploit that vulnerability in our in our in our um, our operations. Uh, and with women, as we've scaled. Uh, we haven't had to worry about corruption. They're either really bloody good at it or we just haven't, and we haven't seen it yet or, or just, it's just not happening. Uh, so, because we haven't had to worry about corruption, it means we can employ directly from the communities alongside the area we're trying to protect. Now, the largest line items in our budget is, is salaries for rangers. It makes up a, a massive component of what we pay out each year. So instead of that money now being distributed around the country into a, a, a communities hundreds of kilometres away from the area we're trying to protect, it's now going directly into the community at household level and in mostly into the hands of women. I think $0.62 cents out of every dollar we spend operationally is going back into the community alongside the area we protect and 80% of that is at household level into the hands of women. So... Uh, We've taken the largest line item in conservation and turned it into the most effective community development tool, which is women's empowerment. So we changed, we shifted our entire strategy on conservation. Uh, We put women's empowerment at the center of that strategy. It gives us the greatest traction in community development and conservation became the byproduct. And we, we flipped the way that we look at conservation from being inside an area looking to protect it, to being outside an area, looking to motivate protection from the community. We understood that conservation is not a a, a natural issue. It's a social issue. And when you deal with the social issues first rather than last, uh, you'll have a far greater impact uh, and and a far more um, financially economical rate, if that makes sense. You you can achieve far more with, with far less money. You're not having this. Uh, this ongoing war that requires drones and planes and military-grade hardware and, and, and canine attack teams and bigger fences and more guns and troops on the ground and all that, you're actually having something far more um, far more effective in law enforcement than, than biceps and bullets. You're having relationships, and that's what these women taught me, uh, and, and in, in that lesson, that second lesson there, that the lesson of, of relationships versus force, power, Uh, um, women naturally de-escalate tension my background is counter-insurgency warfare we're trained to look for a fight and finish it Uh, women women tend to want to have a conversation with something before they blow it up Uh, um, and that's that's very that's very useful when you're trying to have a relationship with tens of thousands of people that live directly alongside of the area you're trying to protect and, and in all of that and the de-escalation that women bring to law enforcement, de-escalation means demilitarization, uh, we actually cut our operational costs by two-thirds. Uh, so it freed up a massive component of our budget, which we were then able to reinvest back into the community into water sanitation, healthcare, and education uh, to go alongside uh, gender equality and job creation. And and all of this has just become this formula, this this evolving formula that we you know, see as best practice um, and for us is working, uh, not only as a sustainable alternative to trophy hunting uh, and the income that generated for local uh, communities, but as a way to motivate communities to see the benefit in conservation uh, at scale. We stopped looking at, at as being a service provider and training ranges, and we started um, going into long-term contracts with local communities. We stopped looking at species uh, started looking at biodiversity and understanding that when you look at biodiversity as a whole, then all the species are included. And then we stopped looking at parks in, as standalone parks, and we started looking at landscapes, the network, the wide open network of uh, which is a jigsaw puzzle of nature with multiple parks joined together. Uh, and in the case of Zimbabwe, eight parks uh, in our portfolio there across the mid to lower Zambezi and the Zimbabwe region of the Zambezi Valley of Zimbabwe. Uh, one of the largest and most iconic ecosystems are on the continent. And, uh, and the work that these women are doing is seems like every dollar that is spent in community development is a dollar or two less we have to spend in law enforcement. And this is, a, this is, this is I mean, I consider and say putting, as I said earlier, putting women into the, the forefront of law enforcement will change the dynamics of society for the better. And we, we had a blank canvas to test that on. Uh, because we went into a broken area that had nothing left. And it's not like you can go into Chicago or, or uh, you know, Detroit and you say, okay, we're going we're gonna to change out all the, the, the male police officers working in law enforcement for women and see what happens. Uh, you don't have that luxury. We had that luxury to be able to do that and see what happens and be able to measure the results. And the results have been profound, both in terms of reduction in poaching and increasing wildlife populations, and the money that's being spent in, in, in development in local communities. Uh, women seem to use uh, or carry a weapon as a, as a tool, not a toy. It's not an extension of ego. Uh, in the more than 300 arrests that they've made, there's only been shots fired once They've helped drive a, a, an almost 90% downturn in elephant poaching across the region. Uh, and at the same time, an almost 400% increase in wildlife populations. So it's working. Uh, we have a majority of the communities that are on side with what we're doing. Uh, there, there is still that unfortunate reality of having to carry a weapon um, because, you know, someday they're, 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 they're going to come up against people that are shooting at them. And, uh, yeah, I would love to live in a world where nature is not targeted in, in such a manner. So that's, yeah, that's, uh, we, we actually have far more staff that are unarmed than staff that are armed. Uh, we, have, we have the same amount of uh, uniformed scouts that are unarmed working in the communities as what we call community liaison officers, uh, as we have armed rangers in the field. And then on top of that, there's all the support staff working in habitat, working in ecology, uh, the scientists, the people that are working in development in the communities, uh, the, the, the students. I mean, we have hundreds of students going through now as part of scholarship programs in, in schools. Underprivileged children. Uh, we've got nurses in clinics. We've got uh, specialists that come in and, and work with the women. Uh, we've got uh, trauma healing uh, sessions that are happening in, in the communities. Uh, so there, there is there's still this, and it, rightly or wrongly, maybe d- does get portrayed as as a, just a, a team of armed um, women out there running around uh, protecting nature because that's the that that does. That that is often the sexy side that that uh, the media wants to grab a hold of, and it's a small wedge of, of, of a much bigger picture.
0: Couple of more rapid questions. Any piece of music uh, that you go to uh, for inspiration or for solace?
1: I I uh, I like to sit back with a bit of Rodriguez. And I just, I just, saw, I was just in the states, and I went and watched uh, the Rolling Stones' last two concerts, uh, wow. one in, in Austin and then one in Miami. One of our instructors, um, he works with us part time uh, when he's in Africa, but he's uh, he's one of the head uh, security guys for the Rolling Stones. So I got to I got to go there and take a couple of donors uh, to each concert. It was it was epic. It was
0: awesome. <laughs> Fantastic books that you. That you read and that really helped transform you in different ways.
1: I think uh, I read a lot of Wilbur Smith growing up, which I think uh, planted a seed for Africa. Uh, *Papillon* is is probably probably my favourite book. It's just the story of sh- struggle and survival, and and I think in in a way that's that's uh, that's been the consistent thing about my life is just it's just never giving up. And I've never been exceptionally good at anything or better than anyone else. It's just I've just never given up. Just been either stubborn or stupid,
0: what has love from family and friends taught you? what is love for you?
1: Uh, love is a door to a new universe that I didn't know existed until uh until it did and um when you do when you do you realize it's bigger than anything else before
0: mm. have you what does forgiveness means for you
1: uh, being humble uh being willing to forgive and forget uh, and uh, yeah sit and and look at each other as an equal
0: what is truth
1: truth is is exposing yourself yeah it's being vulnerable uh it's acknowledging uh, yeah truth is you know you can you can bullshit anyone you can't bullshit yourself being honest to yourself first
0: and what does the divine mean for you? What is God's? Whether it's God or whether it's the divine or whatever it is, what is that for you?
1: Mm-hmm. I believe there's something bigger than 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 us. I don't know what it is. Uh, uh, I had to research recently on the odds of us being who we are uh, and the odds of you being you and me being me, scientifically a 400 trillion to one. I don't believe in anything before this life. Uh, I've had never been proven, uh, approved of, of anything after this life. So this is it. This is the one shot we've got to do as much as we can. We've got a handful of decades to evolve, to cut away the bits that don't work. We've got a handful of decades to do what nature spent billions of years doing, to evolve, to become the, the best that we can be. You know, if there is something after after this, you know, I'll take it as a, as a pleasant surprise, but I don't, I don't believe that, this, that there is. I believe this is it. We hit the jackpot just by being us.
0: That was Damien Mander. To learn more about his work, please visit www.iapf.org. For full transcripts of this episode, please visit www.findcenter.com. Do remember to subscribe to this podcast, it is free, and I truly would welcome your comments. You can also follow us on Instagram at find_center or follow me at Zaynab Selby. Redefined is produced by me, Zaynab Selby, along with Rob Carso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Khan at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Neil Goldman, Carolyn Pincus, and Shira Johnston. See you next week for another conversation about life's turning points and lessons learned.